This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker, and we are having a very interesting guest on here today, and she is bringing to us a completely different perspective in terms of really kind of the Me Too movement and how women need to fully realize themselves through their tragedies of their lives and how they can experience themselves as women. Dr. Saida Desulay, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here, Chuck, and I think we're going to have a very dynamic conversation together. going to be fun. going to be fun. Yeah. So I'm going to have a couple words from our sponsor, and then I'm going to come back and formally introduce you. So Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Direct Health Access Laboratory. They are international leaders in molecular testing for mind science details. With over 3 million studies, they provide deep experience with the usefulness of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrol, and copper challenges. Their innovative insights improve treatment priorities through a global service with a molecular focus. Connect your provider with a PDF on how and why these tests work for treatment failure at dhalab.com forward slash core. Stay tuned for more details in a moment. Core Brain Journal is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, where they provide fresh options to address the complexity of child and adolescent treatment failure from behavior imbalances to, get this, substance abuse, both nationally and internationally. Most interesting, they have a similar pattern, is their deep focus on data-driven biomedical advances that measure specifics on what to do with those treatment failures, even after multiple hospitalizations are extensive outpatient work. Review their innovative programs at barryrobinson.org forward slash core B-A-R-R-Y, robinson.org forward slash core. More information coming later in the program. Now, let me introduce you to Saida. She is a very interesting woman. It's going to be very, very pleasant conversation. We had a great talk before we even got started. So she is a thought leader and speaker on the growing edge of researching ways women can use their minds, bodies, and spirits to create richer lives through their sensual selves. She serves as a guide to women who believe in transformation as a lifelong path of learning, discovery, and their own personal walk to freedom. But it was a violent rape that nearly cost Saida Desiree her life that put her on this path. And we're going to talk about that. She is self-described as street savvy, equipped with a feisty farm girl strength. I love it. And a grace of a dancer. She was by no means naive. In fact, this French-Canadian native was raised as a First Nation on a First Nations reservation in Manitoba. So we needed to hear more about that, where sexual abuse of children, teens, and young women was commonplace. Despite seeing that openly, she never expected to be so violently attacked by a man she was just simply dating. Shocking violation left her in such an excruciating physical and emotional pain and damage that upon waking up after emergency surgery, he was told that she was going to have a problem with her life. Let's pass it on. Cited, that is a terrible way to get started. What an introduction. Beat up, hammered, surprised, 
violated. Oh my gosh, it sounds terrible. So I really, in a way, apologize for reading that, but I think it's a way to say, hey guys, let's pay attention to this woman. Let's really think about what she has to say because she's been there and done that and she has the experience of being, are you a, um, should I say the word Indian? I want to be professionally confident about this. It can be First Nation. It depends on the culture. Some people say First Nations, Aboriginal. I mean, different cultures use different words. So you don't mean to offend, so use whatever word you like. <laughs> okay, first, so you're a First Nation and you were, you were raised on a reservation? Yeah, so I'm actually French-Canadian. And mm -hmm. I'm, my status would be Métis, which is basically half-breed. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but um, my father, as an engineer, was engaged in helping the infrastructure of the reservation. So road work, sewage work, water works, like everything, just to improve the quality of life. Mm -hmm. And of course, he brought his family with him. So mm -hmm. that's why we were living there. That is so interesting. I mean, you know, I've often thought about I wanted to do a consultation work because I've always identified with down here, we just call them Indians. I mean, you know, the, the Indian nation, people who have been out there on the plains and dealing with nature and survival when the changes of nature, it was always interesting to me. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you in that regard. So then what happened? How did you transform yourself after this terrible situation? What, I mean, that's a big, big question. We could probably take two hours talking about it, but what would be the motive and how did you actually find yourself following that experience and begin your own personal recovery narrative? First of all, we need to acknowledge that any kind of trauma of this nature, it's surprising and shocking. So you don't often immediately know what's going on. You leave your body, you sort of disassociate. My pain level in my body was so extreme. I didn't have time to think about the incident, really. And when I was stabilized, but then awakened with given, you know, the two weeks to live verdict from my surgeon, that shook my reality. Because I was 20 years old. You don't think about dying at 20. You're thinking about other things, but not dying. So I think the core moment, the moment where everything changed for me was defying my surgeon by mm -hmm. saying... <laughs> Okay, I get that that's what you think, but I choose life. I don't know how. I have two weeks to figure it out. And I did. I ended up getting like a little day pass and I still had all the things plugged into my arms and I went on a like public transit and went over to see an herbalist just to get, you know, her opinion and what was going on and what were my options. And so I did that. I, I right away just kind of took charge of my healing and I had to deal with being shamed by hospital staff because it was a religious hospital and I was dying of a PID, which is a sexually transmitted infection. So I was like the worst of the worst sinners. And then I was also being shamed for taking my health in my own hands. So the surgeon, the doctor would come back and literally yell at me for like taking herbs. She would yell at me. So I had to stand, you know, it's not easy when you're young to find your power and your strength. But thankfully my father, the way he raised me, I was always a bit of a rebel and I was quite like strong. I remember this moment when I think I was about six, I got jumped in the schoolyard by a bunch of boys and they were dry humping me and they held me down. But when I got out of that, I scratched their faces and I got in so much trouble because I'm the white kid scratching the, the oh. first child. And so I was the one that got in trouble and I was going to get beaten by the beaver tail. Now, I don't know if you ever felt a beaver tail when it's dried out, but it's like a brick and it hurts like it just hurts. And so the woman was threatening me with this and she was this big lady. And I said to her, that's all right. You can do whatever you want. But when you're done, I'm going to go downstairs to my father's office and you will be fired. <laughs> that sounds, a, that's a powerful response. <laughs> yeah. And I'm six years old. So my father had somehow, my mother and father, but mostly my father with the boundaries and clarity, you know, established 
that I had a right to defy what was going on or I had a right to whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I did. And so that's kind of obvious why I defied my surgeon, you know, many years later. It's mm-hmm. that same kind of feisty spirit in me, which I think is really crucial to say because sometimes we put all our power in authority. We put all our power in the doctor or the lawyer or the this or the that. And, and so that was a crucial moment. And it actually influenced my work much later where I realized, you know, the individual and how we choose is so powerful. How we define ourselves is so powerful. I either can choose to be a victim right now or I can choose to like reclaim my life. And so that's what I did. And you know what's interesting, Chuck, is that I, I never once thought of myself as a rape victim. Well, that that's interesting. It that didn't actually, yeah. Good for you. It didn't occur to me. And I think because I don't even know why it didn't occur to me, but many years later, someone said, you know, that was, that's considered like extremely violent rape. And I said, yes. And I was victimized. Absolutely. I just don't wear that badge. And so I, I wanted to say that now because I think that's really important in the reclamation journey. This is different than taking someone from trauma to survivor. I'm talking about reclamation where you fully reclaimed yourself. There is a moment where we have to put that badge down and stand in our power and say, who I am isn't solely determined by what just happened. That is so well said. So well said. I like the reclamation idea because it's really a more total recovery. It's not, doesn't pathologize it so much. It actually gives you a place to go in, in terms of actually who you are. Yeah. And, you know, it's become obvious to me that we live in a world that we consistently traumatize one another. So that's where in my work, because I saw a lot of it, I mean, nine out of 10 ladies were abused in in the numbers that would come to me, obviously, because they're coming to me mostly for that reason. And so what I started seeing is our, for me, it was absolutely true. And I started seeing it for them too, that our greatest wound is actually, if we choose, our greatest point of power. So what nearly killed me has become in its gift, the gift I offer the world. And I, I am so grateful for that. Not that I'd want to relive that experience, but I am just grateful that I was able to take that greatest wound and not stay locked in it, but to have full reclamation, transformation. I'm like, wow, this matters. I want to have a great sex life again. I want to enjoy being around men. I want to, you know, and I just made a list of all these things that I would love and that became important to me, and that's what I went for. Good for you. I mean, that's fantastic. Now, how did you do that? I mean, did you have somebody help you? Did you have a coach? What was the process of reclamation like for you? It was confusing. I had nobody. I was 20 years old, and even now, I mean, that was many years ago. It's not any more comfortable now to talk about sexual trauma than it was back then. But I can tell you alone in the hospital thinking that I'm dying and my best friends aren't not coming to see me because it's so uncomfortable to go, well, uh, shit, you're dying and you were raped. Like, who wants to talk about it? Nobody. Mm -hmm. So I was left really alone in some ways. And that could sound terrible, but there's something powerful when we self-source. I did not abandon myself. I was confused. I didn't know where to go, but I did not abandon myself. And there wasn't a lot of clarity initially, but once I was physically stabilized, then the next thing became obvious. And I did that. And then the next thing. And what really helped me was to follow 
that natural, intuitive, instinctual healing. Like when animals are really wounded, they know what to do. And somehow my own body started to unwind the trauma. And then through the years, eventually I would meet a healer or a, you know, a therapist and they would have a little gem for me. But mm-hmm. it was still up to me to implement that gem or not. Yeah. Such an important point. I was thinking as you were saying it, how important it was for you to not buy the view of really everybody. Every single person there was seeing you in this particular light and diminishing you in that whole, you, had, you became a negative person, even mm-hmm. to your friends, because they didn't know what to do with you. And so then you had to like find yourself and find your attributes, find out who you were piece by piece, even in spite of everybody having these negative views of you. And I, I think that's so true. I mean, it's a terrible thing, the rape and everything that happened to you and, and to, be, to be sick and almost die. And that little piece right there is what happens every day to so many people. They can either decide they're going to live in that perception, into the group perception of themselves, or they're going to transform themselves and move, move past. Yes, exactly. And so my journey of healing myself, because there was such a full reclamation a few years later, women started coming to me and they're like, I don't know what you're doing but I want some of it. Yeah, right. And I have therapists now that interview me on video and they go and watch my videos. Like, there's no way you were sexually traumatized. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I can tell. I meet, I've been in therapy for 30 years. I know what it looks like. And I'm like, well, this is what reclamation looks like. That's half-baked. We don't mm-hmm. take people all the way through the healing. We leave them half-baked. And so the part that I want to offer people is the second part. It's the part where we go into thrival, where we transform the wound into the gift because Mm -hmm. that's the path that I took and it's the journey that I invite every single woman who's in my community to take for themselves. Yeah, and I would say to the take one step further, the global community, because we see this happen so often. I mean, it is a guy thing too because guys have the same experience, whether it's a business trauma, which is obviously not the same thing. And I don't mean to trivialize your experience, but there's a metaphoric similarity to how a person deals with trauma. Either they decide they're a bad person or inadequate. And this person who was difficult with them has identified them as a negative experience. And they then accept that or they're like, you know, you're you're full of crap. This is not where it is. I'm going somewhere else. I would say that there are many defining moments in life, but trauma is definitely one of those defining moments. What we choose to do post that experience, because now, like with, as you mentioned earlier, the Me Too movement has come out and many other things, we just get to see the prevalence of trauma. That's sort of what's become self-evident. But we're also looking, like, this is not excluding trauma in wars. Like there's a lot of trauma on the planet. So how do we help people who are in those experiences have a reclamation and actually get to enjoy the rest of their life, get to create the things that really matter to their heart instead of being kept in a PTSD, shut down, like reactive, fearful place? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that you took the actual sexuality of the situation and made that into a transformational experience because the title of your book is, okay, I'm going to be a sensual, alive, sexual woman person, as opposed to I'm going to be a damaged, non-sexual, sexually debilitated human being. And that you actually took that experience and transformed that into 
becoming alive as a sensual woman. That's the title of the book, basically. You're really saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to be fully who I am as an adult human being in this respect as well, even though this happened to me. Absolutely. That's, that was a big shift because I, I think it's a very unusual paradoxical shift that you would go that far into that recovery, you know, and that you would actually take that. How did you actually come to that part of it? Because that would be an interesting thing to women who've experienced this. What, what made, because that's a unique perspective, you know, to say you're feeling better is one thing, but to actually achieve a certain level of comfortableness with your own sensuality and sexuality, having had that terrible thing happen to you, how did all that take place? I want to be honest here because the way that I was raised, so the subtitle of my book is Awakening Erotic Innocence. And now that I've done a lot of this work, I see that we actually mature erotically and and, uh, emotionally. So there is a maturation journey that we go through. Erotic innocence, we all go through from birth. Like that's, we're born this way. But there's a return to that. So I just wanted to say that the way I was raised was so healthy that I never lost that innocence. And I was raised in a way that was very well boundaried, but I was never shamed for my pleasure. And Mm -hmm. I was the only girl that wasn't sexually active as a teenager. Now I was with myself, Mm -hmm. but somehow by having a strong sexuality on my own, I got to see clearly the dynamics of teenage relationships and went, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want that. I want something else, but it's not going to be that because I could see how much my girlfriends were suffering. And so I waited. I was actually a very late bloomer sexually, mm-hmm. but I was very empowered and ecstatic f- from birth. Pretty much my mom said, she thinks I was, you know, came out masturbating. <laughs> you <laughs> you know, were ready. I was ready. I was probably doing it in the womb. So there's, there was a sense of comfort. I mean, I was five years old teaching other five-year-olds where this very pleasurable spot was mm-hmm. on their body with no shame, with just pure like, oh my God, you need to know this because it's so good. Mm-hmm. And then of course, being shamed by an older sister who caught me in the act of sharing this wisdom. And my thought as she was yelling at me and saying I was horrible things to me was, she probably doesn't know where that spot is because I think she wouldn't be so angry if she did. <laughs> right. I mean, so you can see the character of this mm-hmm. erotically innocent, integrated, healthy child And so that was there in the spirit, Chuck. So I think Mm -hmm. when the trauma happened, I already had the compass. My true north included sexuality and sensuality. It was there already. And I think the gift for me is because the journey was so violent and so intense and I had full recovery, it allows me to speak to this issue to women from a place of what's possible and what's real. Maybe that's why somehow I was chosen for that moment. I don't know why we do, we do certain things, but I do know that it is a gift of mine to remind women that there is a beauty to life and that our sensuality is how we make sense of reality. And by being numb, we actually make ourselves unsafe. So we want to be more sensual so that we're more connected and more aware and can take care of ourselves in a better way. And on a positive side, that translates to healthy, expressed sexuality. So those thoughts were very important in my transformation. Well, two thoughts come up in regards to that. So first of all, compliments to you. I didn't really quite get that from your bio. That's hidden in there. I don't, I don't but that <laughs> is really well said. You said that so articulately. And, I, and I'm speaking as a person who's spoken to women who have been traumatized. And we've 
come across this conversation. And a person's like, no, I really can't experience any pleasure. I don't really want to experience any pleasure. And as a guy talking with a woman about it, it's not really kosher to get too much into that whole thing because on some level they're worrying that you're erotizing the situation when you're really trying to say that's something that you could have if you wanted to, but then you have to dance around the whole thing because it looks like you're getting off on it, you know, and you, you know, so then the issue for you to say that as a woman is so valuable. Yes. And I think certain things men get to hold for each other and there's certain things women get to hold for each other. And with this particular healing, it is important to come to a circle of women. First of all, oxytocin is really like activated when women get together and it's so healing to infuse the body with oxytocin. Then a lot of the practices I teach, you're self-inducing oxytocin states, which is very healing. And then I, I make a case for pleasure because the body, biologically, all living beings here on the planet, from amoebas to human, expand into pleasure and contract away from pain. So our systems are designed to optimally function when we feel good and they shut down when we're distressed. That's just how it is. We're not meant to be perpetually distressed. The systems wear out and, and then things fall apart. So I make a case for it. Immune system works better. All the systems actually work better when we can feel relaxed. So where that starts, Chuck, the journey at this stage is first to rebuild trust with one's own body because we feel betrayed. And so that's where it begins. It doesn't begin with sex and intercourse and kisses. It mm -hmm. begins with me and what is this thing called my body and do I even want to feel anything that she's going through? Yes, that's very interesting. And that is really something only a woman could talk with a woman about. Yeah. Because you just can't do it. And uh, it's, I understand exactly what you're talking about. I'm sure the women listeners feel the same way. And I would be very surprised if the guys didn't feel that way as well mm. who are listening because it's not just a woman thing. No. You know, it, it's a yeah. guy feeling good. I mean, the guys are going to do it more on a workout level, whatever, but I don't think they're going to come quite down to that level that you're talking about on a sensual level, admit it to themselves. This is something that is okay for me. They may do it privately. Yeah, and you know what's amazing, Chuck? We live in a society that has made sensuality and sexuality a commodity. It's a currency. But what it really is, our sensuality, we make sense of reality through the senses, through being sensual. That's how we're making sense of all these signals. And it has served us forever. Since humans have been here, it's helped our surviving and our thriving to be connected with our environment, not numb and not disconnected. It's so dangerous. If you go in the wilderness, I lead safaris in Africa just for women and like walking in safaris. What fun. Right? So your life is like you could get eaten at any second. There's real wild lions and all kinds of creatures. But the way that we do it, we, we go into resonance and you get to see that actually you can't hide any facet of yourself because nature will react to it. And the more you relax and the more you're connected, the closer the animals come and the more relaxed they are. So there's a relearning, a repatterning that starts to happen that we really can't teach in like rah, rah, rah kind of style mm -hmm. workshops. Yeah. 
it isn't purely intellectual. No. <laughs> this is, you know, now I'm, I'm coming up with a question, which I'm going to take a break here in a second, but I'm going to ask you this question when we get back, because I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking about it, because in a way, what you're talking about is so provocative in a uncomfortable way from the point of view of where they go with that, if they have it, if they have that ability to connect with that sensuality, then what do they do with it? So the question I'm going to ask you when we get back is how do you take that next step with a person in terms of how they actually handle it? Because Mm -hmm. if a person's really internally that way with themselves, there is a certain provocative quality to it. And there has to be then some way to manage yourself in that other, in that other persona that you become. So mm-hmm. we come back in just a moment and I'll ask you that question. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Okay, folks, we're back in the midst of provocation. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to really see and we're going to ask Saida how this actually works when she works on an African safari with a person being in the wilderness, in the natural environment, and really a person who's been traumatized, but she's actually becoming aware of her own persona as a human being, as a, as a feminine, sensual person, aware of herself and connected with the outside world. How does she manage that? How does she actually mm-hmm. then, because it's going to be a seductive quality, because she's yeah. actually so alive, she's going to be more attractive than just smiling, okay? So the issue is if she's more attractive than just plain old smiling, she's not just a cheerleader. She's got this whole other thing going on. How does she handle that? What, how do you answer that for her? Oh, my gosh. I love this question. It's so fabulous. So actually, the answer is the first half of my book. I literally wrote a philosophy on the art of succulent living to help answer this question in a very profound way because we live in a world that does not understand what a woman is like when she's fully at home and at ease in her own sensuality and sexuality and just lives in accordance to that, in, in right relationship with it. What does that look like at work, in relationships with family, with children, etc., etc.? So the first thing I want to say is that with sexuality, so the concept, you, you, I think you mentioned a little earlier about sexual sovereignty. We, we just kind of 
skip through. I want to define what that is because yeah, it answers good. this question. So sovereignty meaning full autonomy, full authority over one's domain could be a country, but in this case, it's my body. And this means my fertility, my pleasure, my sexual orientation, how, when, what, all of that is my business and my choice alone. No institution or person or anything external has the right to tell me how to live in that sense. So that's the sovereign bit. I included sexual because a few people were like, why didn't you just do body sovereignty? I'm like, because we would exclude sexuality. We're so afraid of it. So I want to include it. And that's very, very important in this day and age to understand that because to have to be born a sexually sovereign being where we respect that this is a sexual being, not a commodity, but an actual human being that has sexuality and that they're sovereign is crucial to how we socialize. And when I was looking at the rights, the human rights, what I realized is there was nowhere on the planet that we actually have the right to our own body. Maybe because it's obvious, but it's never been stated. Not clearly. So it's not really being claimed collectively. We haven't claimed this right. That is a profound thought. I mean, when you think about it, that's a barn burner right there because it's so true. Sorry to interrupt you, but that was just... Uh, I love interruptions. They're fun and dynamic. That, 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 takes, that, that is a very serious thought. Yes. So if it is a right, that doesn't mean entitlement. Rights come with responsibility. So the point of sexual sovereignty, first of all, is a profound respect for one's own self. You know, what is my boundaries? What's my body? What are the needs? Taking a stand for that. Having this deep reverence, this deep respect, this responsibility. And that inherently would then transfer outwardly. Okay? It's an inherent quality. If I deeply respect myself, it's natural I respect. It flows out. So for a woman who really claims, and a man too, this is not, sexual sovereignty is not just for women. It's for everyone. And if you're born human, you, you have this. Either everyone has it or none of us have it. You know what I mean? It's not, mm-hmm. yeah. it's just all or nothing. So for a woman who's really choosing that full claiming of her sexual sovereignty, she will go on a journey where she will be confronted with looking at all the definitions that she's accepted from external sources about herself. First of all, we live in a culture, like I said earlier, that has made sexuality a commodity. So on one hand, we sell everything with it. And we Mm -hmm. tell women that your only viability really is how sexy you are. Now, we don't say it directly, but in the marketing and everything that's happening, the sexiest woman wins, right? Yeah, that's true. But the second a woman claims that, she's a slut or a whore. Yeah. How confusing, especially the young women. I mean, when you're a little older, you kind of figure out your way a bit, but that's confusing. So you want me to be this, but the second I claim it, I am a slut. So what we need is, okay, we need to strengthen people enough, their self-esteem, their self-value, where the definition of other doesn't carry more weight than our own self-definition. Very key point. Very key point. Absolutely. I mean, I was just, as you were saying that, I mean, that's the reason I asked the question, because that is where a person has to go with this, is that operational perspective of daily life. And that's a very good answer, the way you said it, because basically what happens is you can't be defining yourself by any of these other, and you have to really break through what you're saying. It's interesting to hear it. 
you have to break through all the various uh, the modifications of perceptions that people have about how you are, who you are as a person and what, what their sexuality is, what their view of that whole thing is. And you have to live with yourself in all of those varieties of contexts. That's a doggone interesting point. And what's interesting, too, is when people um, talk to me about sexual sovereignty, I say, well, it's actually none of my business how you orient yourself and who and when and what you do sexually. Mm-hmm. It's not my business. It's your business, but it's not mine. I would never claim to, to define that for anyone. We must claim that for ourselves, and that takes responsibility to do that. It really does. And you know what's interesting, Chuck? In our society, there's this weird idea that if women were to become fully liberated sensually and sexually, chaos would ensue. Families would fall apart and society would like, it would be, you know, this disaster. And and these are not my words. These words have been around for a long time. Yeah. And so we need to confront that meme. Meme is like a mental virus propagated as truth. We need to confront that meme and go, really? Is that, do we really want to live in a world where the population doesn't believe that as an individual, they matter, that they're powerful, that they actually have the resources to handle their lives and they can in you know, that kind of world. Do we want to believe everyone's a victim and poor them? And so then we need you know, people in leadership to decide everything for you because you're incapable. I don't want to live in that world. I really don't. So now what we're looking at is learning to lead our own lives. And that is a scary thing because we're going to need to lean in and go, what matters to me? What actually lights me up? I know what women don't want. Trust me, I could write a book on everything women don't want and what they're sick of. But when I ask them, well, what would you love? And this was the same for me, by the way, on my path to healing, I was asked that question. What do you want? I was like, (laughs) I have a right to say that. (laughs) I don't even think I've even thought about this. So we don't lean in because it's so vulnerable to feel for a moment what really matters to our hearts. And that's crucial in the healing and the reclamation and in the coming forth with our gifts post-trauma. So take it one step further, if you will, because that's an interesting evolution because it still comes down to a certain level of practicality because the reason everyone would be in turmoil is because the women would be so self-possessed and so attractive that everybody would lose their minds. I mean, they'd be all like, oh my gosh, because the power would be radiating from their self-confidence, which would make them attractive. So then the next question is, how does a person actually manage that? I got managing themselves, but how do they manage it in the context of reactions and life? Because I'm sure you're coaching people on that whole thing because that next thing is, okay, you've, you've realized yourself. There's been a self-realization take place. Then the next question is, how do you actually operationally deal with it? That's a really good question. And that's what we need to talk about between friends, with family members, in our communities. What would sexual sovereignty look like in a practical way? So let's imagine you and I, we meet, right? You're a man, I'm a woman, we meet. And I'm French Canadian, so we're pretty vivacious. We're very flirty. We're very affectionate. And we're having this discussion. I'm so excited about it. I reach out and I touch you. I didn't ask. And you're like, ooh, what does that mean? Because maybe you come from a more reserved culture. Actually, my responsibility to go, oh, was that uncomfortable? Because here's where I'm coming from with that. And I apologize if I overstepped a boundary. Immediately, 
not three weeks down the line when a big story was made with it. So the responsibility is part of that is sensuality, part of that is instinctual, part of that is just limbic resonance and social skill. But mm-hmm. let's take responsibility for what we're bringing to the table. I know that I'm juicy and alive and connected and I don't hold anything back because I don't mm-hmm. want to, but I'm also very well boundaried and uber clear. So mm-hmm. if something is questionable, I will clear it up like that. Mm-hmm. That is probably the gift of the Me Too movement is to activate this in all people. Let's speak and let's yeah. own our feelings. Let's be accountable, not just demand accountability outside, but let's personally be accountable. And that's how we're going to change the world. And, and so if something is uncomfortable, say you say something or do something that goes a little too far for me, right? And you're taking it way too far. I'm like, whoa, Chuck, just a second here. Relax, like, buddy. Yeah. What, I get that you're excited. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. I'm really happy you're excited. Yeah. But here's what's going on for me. I'm married. I'm madly in love with my husband. And I'm, this is not going to go anywhere, but I'm happy to like be playful with you as long as you understand the context of this exchange. Now we're two healthy adults talking. We're not shaming each other. We're not blaming each other. We're not labeling each other. Notice in your conversations, if you label blame or shame, because the second you do that, you're ending the conversation. So lean in, get curious. And be comfortable with yourself. So the guy, see, I was thinking about that whole thing of the touch, because what happens, there are a number of things. The guy may take it as a seductive embrace in a way. I really want to be familiar with you. And in a way, you're saying that on some level is I'm comfortable with myself and would like to be tight with you in a, in a relaxed way. But the guy is coming from a different socioeconomic whatever background. And women don't do that with him. So he's okay, then there's a certain mandate that then comes up with me as a guy. Maybe I really should respond to her in some other way So then you, as a responsible person taking responsibility for yourself, has to be aware, which you did, of the implications that you have to clarify. Women, when we're in this, like you said earlier, it creates a magnetism. And I'm talking, you don't need to be typically what society thinks beautiful for this to happen. I had women who their whole lives have never drawn any attention to them start to do this self-care practice and start to be like this magnetic honey. And they didn't know what to do with all the attention. And we're talking like older ladies or women who Mm -hmm. might be feeling uncomfortable with their weight, for example, or like traditionally the things that would challenge them to feel attractive. It's irrelevant when this magnetism is activated. So the responsibility that we have to understand here we are, succulent women in a barren culture. What do we do? We need to be responsible. We need to communicate with that. And sometimes we've got to be firm and sometimes we just get to be playful. Mm-hmm. I like to just, uh, one of the things I say is I'm never responsible for anyone's arousal. I'm not. So I don't have to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I just don't. And what that, why that's liberating is I let you, maybe you're switched on, you're feeling really delicious. Mm-hmm. Great. Why is that bad or wrong? It only becomes weird as if you, you know, try and like non-consensually do something. Right, right, right. But if, I, if we both can acknowledge that we're feeling lit up from the conversation in the company, but it's well within the context of a colleague or friendship and, and we're owning that, then 
we get to exist in a world where we can be alive, we can be switched on, and we don't need to be afraid, and we're responsible, and we're like, oh, you know what? I actually don't need to hump everything that moves. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, have to, I don't have to demonstrate my prowess. Yeah. You know, which is like, yeah. you know, I didn't pass it up. I'm not a wuss. Yeah. You know, exactly. I'm just, that's a very, very interesting <laughs> point because that's kind of the male mandate. If somebody hints at something, then you got to take it to the deeper level or you're a wuss. And uh, I won't say the other words that are applied there, but, and so that somehow your masculinity is being held in question the minute someone is being genuinely close to you in some emotional and quasi-sensual way. It's not really sensual. It's just that because it isn't sensual, a touch is not necessarily a sensual act, but there is a certain intimacy that takes place. Yes. And then what does, what does one do with that intimacy? Yeah. Well, we live in a culture, unfortunately, like if you go to Latin-based cultures, it's different because we touch a lot and, mm -hmm. you know, kiss two cheeks and our walk arm in arm and, and we, there's a lot of fun partner dancing. But in some cultures, there's, the only time a person gets touch is when they're sexual. So, of course, it's natural to associate touch with the act of sex instantly yep. because that's the only time it's ever happened in their mm -hmm. adult life. And that's too bad. So what we're trying to do is, with the idea of sexual sovereignty is then what would it look like? If you were fully sovereign as a man and I'm fully sovereign as a woman, how do we want to interact? If it's clear that we're not going to engage in that mm -hmm. together, but we're, you know, just being who we are and enjoying right. yeah. the company. What does that look like? We need to talk about that amongst each other and start defining that. It won't be just defined by someone like me. It has to be yeah. defined culturally by everybody. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Well, you know, I really appreciate your helping our audience. This is a very unusual conversation. I have to tell you that. I don't have conversations like this very often. Talk about the intimacy of a conversation. This is a very unusual, and I really appreciate having this conversation with you because I think it's a, a very useful one for a lot of ourselves. And I think it's a useful conversation for me personally because I hadn't really conceptualized it this way. Because I think of myself the way you're talking about yourself, but I hadn't really brought it all up in terms of how I actually articulate it to myself and, and say what it is, because I like the whole male, female thing, but I'm pleasurable and tight with guys. I mean, you know, I'm going to put my arm around a guy and be friendly with him because I think it's quite okay. I mean, I'm not attracted to guys in that way at all, but I'm very comfortable with being close to the guys. So I think it's a good lesson. I really appreciate your sharing. It's very interesting. Let's take a moment to talk about your book again and talk about where we can connect with you and how we can actually uh, take it down the road if we need to. Fantastic. So the book is called The Emergence of the Sensual Woman. And the subtitle is? Awakening I, Our Erotic Innocence. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on Amazon. And it's also on my website, dareyourdesire.com. And the, the site has a lot of resources for people who are looking for more articles or just, just different support. But probably the most interesting place for women to find me right now is called The Daring Project. So thedaringproject.com. And what that is, it actually is a live membership of women from all over the world where I'm holding a creative space for women to dare into what does it look like to be sexually sovereign? What does it look like to embrace and blossom in my confidence and embrace and blossom in what I love and what really matters to my heart? And can I share my story? And so in that community, everyone's story matters, their voice matters, they matter. 
and you get seen and by being seen you're also contributing so it's a really dynamic beautiful powerful supportive community to allow women right now to you know there's no models we don't have healthy models so we need to do it for each other and in these kinds of communities that are well curated and i'm sorry guys right now it's women only but it's for a reason it's yeah it's more <laughs> safety in some ways yeah but i the, the conversation and let's actually practice what i call micro moments of daring practice what this looks like in the tiniest ordinary moments of life. Isn't that where the truth is? Yes. Because if you got the little ones down, the big ones are all going to make sense anyway, because you have your head turned on as opposed to just leaving it in <laughs> denial. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for a very, very interesting conversation. I look forward to some future time if you say, hey, Parker, there's this whole other thing that came up. Just give me a call. We'll get together. We'll talk because it'd be very interesting to hear as you develop, as you continue to develop your thank dialogue, you. your understanding. We'd be happy to have you come back. It'd be fun. I would love that. And I do have something. I'm releasing a book in June on desire. So oh, I think you you'd really be interested in, in this book. It's going to be a little controversial, but a little pocket book full of packed with awesome stories and new perceptions on desire. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. When that's actually published, let me know. And through Tiffany... And I'll put it on the show notes and we'll get it all up on the show notes and we'll re put it out on social media and the whole thing. We'll get it out there for you. Perfect. Be happy awesome. to do so. Thank Thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Great. This is such a great conversation. Thank it was you fun. So yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.